prenatal care is also for the men. It's, it's so important for the men, for the man, you know, it, prenatal care is for you guys. And so I think that that's a, that's a space that you as men have to step into and say, hey, this is my space too. Like I belong here. And your partner or women should say that, to say my partner needs to come in and be part of this. Welcome to the Frontline Warriors Club, where we live it, not in it. Join us on his mission as we raise consciousness. You can find us on wearefrontlinewarriors.com. Now, before the show, let's take a moment to inhale. Exhale. And the show begin. On this episode, we'd like to welcome Dr. Isabel Bogdan. Dr. Isabel Bogdan is the owner and founder of Believe.co, with 20 years in practice as a woman's nurse practitioner and a doctorate in nursing practice, Dr. Bogdan's inspiration comes from a vision to intertwine traditional medicine with a holistic approach for a transformational change. Her comprehensive background includes certifications in yoga, perinatal postpartum care, mental health and aesthetics, including laser and Botox treatments. We talk about the importance of healthy relationships before, during, and after pregnancy. Most importantly, we talk about how trauma, lifestyle, and environment affect the pregnancy and the child moving forward. Hey, Isabella, welcome to the show. Can you give Hi. us a brief background about yourself and your experience? Yeah, so I'm Isabella Bogdan. I'm a women's health nurse practitioner. I have a doctorate in nursing practice. Um, I'm originally from the Southwest, so I always like to open up with that statement because it's the pinpoint, it's ground zero for me, and my background is ancestor-wise, it's Mexican-American, and because of that, there's a lot of, there's a lot of mix, right, so I have Spanish, European, Indigenous, and then I married my husband, who's Polish, and hence the Bogdan. And um, there's another twist to who I am. And then I moved up to the East Coast, and now I'm living in New York City. So New York City slash uh, Connecticut metro area. So I see a lot of different people, different backgrounds from all over. And I work for Columbia University, so I teach there. I have um, graduate students that I mentor and then I also work with the medical school. So I work with the OBGYN slash MFM division of obstetrics and gynecology at Columbia. So very busy. I see lots of different cases. And I think that today's podcast is definitely going to tie in into what we're trying to dive deeper. Mm. Yeah, 100%. And you're a perfect person because you have a really good background about women's health, family health. So we really want to take this episode in a in a, in a direction where we like to talk about trauma, trauma in the sense of trauma during pregnancy and trauma between the mother and father and how that impacts the baby. So how does like the environment of, of a baby in the womb affect the outcome of that child? Do they, are they maybe more prone to stress moving forward? How does it, uh, it affect that, that baby growing up inside that mom? A lot. And we can call that the study of epigenetics. So. Um, it's a good question to ask the, the 
how how significant the significance of the stressors mm. right and at birth at the time of conception and how we're going to deliver a human that is or isn't affected by that right and then we start to talk about nature versus nurture and environment mm -hmm. because that's a whole nother theory people think oh well the parents are perfect and hence they're going to have a perfect child if the iq of the parents is this the apple doesn't fall far from the tree mm -hmm. however when it comes to stress um in my role especially because i take care of a lot of different types of women with regards to socioeconomic status so we start talking about sdoh right the social determinants of health and when you stand back as a nurse that is i mean that is what we do right that is like absolutely what we do we start to think quickly um, the person's economic status their level of education their food insecurities their relationship status you know we start to like put, put it all together and so when we walk into this room of the person in labor or the woman who just found out she's pregnant we can identify how how she's going to be able to cope with these changes because being a mom nobody knows what it's like mm -hmm. i i personally love to share my story about how i was depressed and i didn't even realize i had depression during pregnancy but you asked a really important question how is the newborn affected um and and it's amazing to find out that there's so much research happening right now so i'm going to answer this question i know it's a very deep question mm -hmm. but there are studies that prove that when a mom has postpartum or perinatal depression, the babies are going to show some of that by being more colicky, by maybe having a little bit more um, disassociation with bonding, unable to like latch on to the breastfeeding, um, but more it's the constant crying. So babies from depressed moms cry more. We really don't know why, but there is a correlation there. And when you look at a relationship that's suffering from a mom who has PMAD or perinatal uh, depression or mood disorder in pregnancy, um, you have to look at the partner and it's highly likely the partner has also some form of perinatal mental health issue. 10% um, has been quoted as it being so. So if the mom's depressed, 10% highly likely the father's going to also be depressed or have some other issue, anxiety, um, depression, some form of, of mood disorder. And so can you imagine those two people don't know they're going through this, they're pregnant, they're stuck together, they have a baby that's colicky, right? And the baby was developing in utero, the baby's feeling stressed already doesn't really know quite why so the baby's going to not be able to cope as well if the mom is unable to understand what's going on and can comfort mm. right and provide a lower amount of cortisol levels to that excessive amount of crying mm -hmm. so then the baby's cortisol levels are going to go up mm. what happens in utero we still don't really know um, but there could be a lot of questions to answer with regards to intrauterine growth restriction or fetal growth restriction. There could be maybe even the opposite. If the mom is quelling her discomfort, and you guys can tell me to stop, right, whenever you need to, but I love, I love this topic. The mom, let's just say the mom has to quell her emotions through eating or drinking juice, something sweet that she desires because it makes her feel good or eating rice or whatever, right? We'll see that in my, in my demographics. Um, 
what's going to happen is that the mom might develop gestational diabetes and then the baby's going to grow too big. Mm. And how do you quell that emotional discomfort, right? By telling the mom not to eat. So it's, it's like, how do we understand the emotional discomfort of what the mom is going through, AKA because of trauma, because she doesn't really know what's going on with her body, um, whether it's generalized trauma, post-traumatic stress disorder, whether it's ancestral, generational, we really don't know what kind of trauma we're dealing with, um, but we do know that women need more awareness. And so why this topic is so important, it speaks to, to my heart is because we really have to tell women, hey, it's okay. You don't really, you don't really know what's going on. When you wake up, you feel like you're floating. So there are some questions in the um, perinatal um, questionnaires that ask moms, how do you feel? Do you feel helpless? Are you feeling connected with this baby? Do you feel like you're floating? Do you feel you're disassociated from reality somehow now that you're pregnant? So if any of these are, are answered yes, then we have to really sit down and tell mom, hey, it's, it's okay. It's okay. We're here for you. Now, what do we do? What would be the intervention is trying to do like mind body. So mother baby yoga is really, really good while the mom is still pregnant to teach her to like feel her heart, feel the baby's movement, accept that, you know, accept those changes in her body. If she's feeling a little bit anxious, feel the feelings because being pregnant and having a human moving inside of you is for some women can be very weird and uncomfortable especially if it's not a planned pregnancy yeah. or the mom is just like feeling really really sick from like morning sickness or fatigue I mean pregnancy is really really tough and so you know the structures of, of the baby's hormones inside are definitely taking off they're starting to develop and so we're developing this human that might come out a little bit more anxious or a little bit more nervous or a little bit too big and have a very traumatic delivery because the mom's eating so much. And so now we got to pull the baby out with forceps or it's an immediate C-section and the C-section goes crazy and the baby never bonded with mom. So there's a lot of small little variables that can make a difference in which we can't answer this question in specific. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. But um, you make me so really brought a, a lot of really good points but the one question that i have right now is even before so pre preconception is there a way to differentiate differentiate between like healthy sperm and a healthy healthy egg is there a way to make your sperm healthier or make your egg healthier is that is that a thing or is this kind of random that's with regards to genetics like, generational trauma uh, I guess so. I guess both. So my thing is like, if you have a depressed father and a depressed mother, or someone that's going through a lot of trauma, does that affect their their sperm and their egg, and how the child is going to then grow up in the in the future? Like, is that is there any research on that, or do you know any information about that? Like, does depression affect the health of your sperm, or does depression affect the health of health of the egg? So if, I mean, you could yeah. go back and look at it and say, is there a likelihood of depression affecting the, 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 the sperm or the egg? Yes, because then you have to deal with infertility and then you're dealing with other factors like sperm motility, right? So it, it depends on like how we're looking at the problem and how is the problem actually impacting that person. So if I have a significant other who doesn't find pleasure in having sex 
and you know we've got to like figure this out and or, or doesn't produce enough sperm could it be a cause of depression because they're on medications or whatever there's a there's a lot of different ways to consider this to be a, a problem or an answer to the problem right if we fix the the depression are we going to have healthier sperm that's a really good question it just depends on how how does the depression how is the depression affecting the sperm but does depression directly affect the the sperm i don't think so i i would say i don't think so i don't think that there's like a true factor as to depression affects sperm i don't think that there's a direct link but there could potentially be so since we're pre-pregnancy how does the dy dynamic of the relationship and lifestyle affect the preconception phase of the baby growing up so we could touch talk about lifestyle, mindset, diet, anything around that realm. So pre-pregnancy, um, yeah. before, so let's just say the couple's together and they're talking about having children. It's really good to start thinking about when, when is the timeline, right? Like, yes, we're dating. And yes, if we're speaking about, you know, theoretically, we want to have kids one day and I accidentally get pregnant in two weeks. That wasn't a lot of planning. And that means that like, if I had been drinking or doing, you know, participating in any kind of toxic behaviors, then our offspring will be directly impacted, especially from a lack of preparedness. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that it was a genetic issue. It just meant that at that point in time, we didn't get a chance to take folic acid. We didn't have a chance to be healthier, be cleaner, work on our sperm motility, talk about genetics. Let's just say I'm 24 and my husband's 64. There's a higher likelihood of schizophrenia, mm. right? So with that said, and that's on the father's side. So we don't, we always have to strategically plan and help women understand that these are true conversations and how do we prepare for them? So there's birth control out there that's called BIAS. It has folic acid in it, just in case you miss a couple of pills and you get pregnant. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So if you're if you're a couple and you really want to have have a kid, what's like a good timetable to set? Is it like a month, three months? Is it more of like a personal one where it's like when you're ready? And how do they fully optimize themselves, the father and the mother, before they actually decide to have that kid? I love it when it's a mutual conversation. Mm -hmm. Because then we have 90 days to plan and that's, there really is no true timing, but 90 days is my favorite because you give it to give it three cycles. You've really detoxed your body. So the first cycle, you're kind of like thinking about it. You're going through it first cycles out. Then the second cycle you're in it, you're, you know, really getting out of like the, those health, those unhealthy lifestyle, toxic habits. You're getting into the mindset of becoming a parent. And then by the third cycle, let's just say, you know, you've already bought a puppy, raised the puppy, had a couple issues with the carpet and you're okay with it. And now you're ready and it's a go. It's like, now you're fully set, you're trained and you're on fire. Go have that baby, go get pregnant. Um, but for many of us, um, pregnancies, 50% of all pregnancies are unplanned. And how about like emotional trauma? So I've been uh, looking up energetics and everything else, and I'm fascinated by the topic how prenatal trauma will affect you down the line, meaning when you're conceived, your nervous system and your soul just gets interbonded, right? And whatever energetic frequency the mother and father had, in a sense, gets interwoven as a template for you to operate on as a, as a human being, correct? So just like thoughts 
get filtered filtered out through a belief and then you have that perception of reality how does emotional trauma by the parents affect prenatal conception how does that affect the kid ultimately i know it's a fully loaded question so yeah it's it is fully loaded but if we're looking at this through the spiritual aspect um i see it a lot i see it happen a lot and you know as a scientist and as somebody who practices evidence-based medicine it's really hard to be like oh well this is because you know the two souls weren't meant to be together or this happened because you had two very poorly genetic pools or two very poorly genetic designed people you know that have very poor nutrition and don't have very you know rust like they don't have very healthy and rigorous um, genes come together. And this is why this baby now has a severe cardiac anomaly. So this is something that it's really difficult for me to, to be able to talk about freely because it's, it's, there's the evidence behind it is not solid, right? So we're looking at more qualitative research, spiritual qualitative research. Um, but what you're saying speaks truth because it can be a general truth. When you have two people that, um, let's just talk karma, right? So when we talk about Buddhism and karma, we talk about a karmic line that's similar to, G to DNA and genetics, you have this clean karmic line. It's highly likely you're going to have a soul that's transcending into a, a very clean, intertwined mesh of of reality, which is 3D reality, and then be present, right? So it's just really good to talk about that being truth as well. But when you have two opposite polar ends of chemistries that are together just for like a split moment, aka maybe like a one night stand, um, it's, it's going to be kind of difficult. You're going to have a lot of trauma, lots of trauma happening yeah. there because you're going to have lots of questions coming up. Um, you can compare the two different uh, subjects, one that doesn't have any issues with, you know, that spiritual connectivity and the one that does from like the parents, right? So myself, my parents could be crazy or whatever you want to call them, but I'm very purposefully put on earth for a reason, right? Because my parents both wanted me here and that was very purposeful. And they both designed this union for me to be here. And so when you talk about someone who, or an individual that they're, that those two people that united were in chaos with one another, it's really hard. I can see how that existence for that human being has been very hard on earth. Does that, is that kind of like where you're coming yeah. with, with that? Yeah, that makes sense. And you took a very professional stand on it because it's science and spirituality that's meshed together in a sense. And the question came from this book called, it didn't start with you. And it just talks about family consciousness and how trauma gets imprinted onto family members based on what we didn't deal with. And that becomes our unconscious memory. And sometimes we, in our life, in our life, we have unconscious memory. We have unconscious thoughts or actions based on something that wasn't resolved. And I think that's a great question to ask you now. Like, what is the difference between ancestral and generational trauma? So um, I read this book by Oprah Winfrey called What Happened to You? And it basically takes a stance that the first two weeks, um, the first two to eight weeks after birth is going to set the stage for this newborn human. And I tell this, 
I, I say these facts to my patients, especially when I know that the pregnancy has been tumultuous. And I ask them deep questions. I'm like, who, who are you? And where are you going? And what do you want for this baby? Because we all had choices. And I ask these questions for moms who like don't come to prenatal visits or it's really hard for them to follow adherence. Um, so it, they stand back and they can take in what I said. I say, you don't have to give me an answer. Just think about it, right? Because um, this cyclic toxic behavior, the cyclic toxic patterns in which we live in is going to answer your question about ancestral trauma. So you have some, some individuals that exist with a background of, um, you know, slavery or hate, a lot of discomfort, right? A lot of us have backgrounds that are real with that. We, 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 you know, in our, in our ancestry, we were probably mistreated. Like, I don't know what it was like for my indigenous, if I am part Native American Indian, indigenous Indian, like who was that person in the tribe, right? And was, were, is there trauma from my ancestors that has been passed on to me? And this is why my stress response is a lot more um, aware and it kicks off faster. And that's why I'm very hyper allergic to things, mm. right? It's ancestral because maybe that's how I'm tuned. It's kind of like a fight and flight and I'm always in that warrior mode, mm. right? So, and now that we're here in 20, 2020, it's like my, my stressors are on, I'm on fire. I have eyes in the backs of my head. And as a nurse, I always, I'm, I'm always on, on watch for others. So I'm very um, maternal and I'm always looking to make sure that everyone is safe because that's just me always acting, right? And so you have to look back at who, who your ancestors were because that's given, in, that's given back into generations. And so then you have the generational trauma where now you're here in 2020, but what happened to your ancestors or your great grandmother 50 years ago or 100 years ago, if you can find someone who can give you that history would be really good. Where was your great, great grandmother? How was it for her? Was she raped? Was she hurt somehow? Was she not raped? Was she given everything? Was she from a very rich family? Like my great grandmother was a very wealthy woman who was mixed. She was indigenous and French. And she was a very, very wealthy woman, beautiful dark skin, green eyes. And then she met my grandfather who was Jewish in Mexico. And his father had escaped persecution. And so they squatted in Mexico. And my grandmother, being Catholic, fell in love with this in-the-closet Jewish guy, like not, not gay in the closet, but they were so scared of being persecuted that they weren't talking about the fact that they were Jewish, right? So then they fall in love, they elope, he tells my grandmother, whatever you do, you can't be Catholic, we're going to go and live in a village, and so now she goes back to her family, her, her family's like, get out of here. You're not, you're not going to be Catholic. You're marrying this guy who just squatted on land. Go beat it. Figure it out. We don't, we don't want to, we don't need you. So now my grandmother's left with no family. Very wealthy woman, rode a horse, played polo, played the harp, and is now moved in with her, the love of her life, my grandfather. And so now she has to figure out how to be a mom. And now she had 12 kids. So now she had, this is like what, 1900s. 
1917, 1920, 1930. She had 12 little kids, one of which was my mom. And there really wasn't that ingrained um, motherhood, you know, it takes a village to raise a family. She, she didn't have that. She basically had to like have the kids each help each other, raise one another. And so I don't know how she was as a mom. Like, was she comforting? Did she know to like quell her children from crying? Did she know what she was doing when she was going through childbirth? So all those questions, right? So that's ancestral uh, generational trauma because then whatever my mom understood of motherhood is given to me. It's passed on to me. So then I raised my kids the way my mom raised me. So if I get mad quick, because that's what my mom, what I saw with my mother, or she's indifferent towards things. Indifference is also part of generational um, intelligence. Then I might be that kind of indifferent mom. Maybe I don't know how to hug. Maybe I don't know how to kiss. Maybe I'm not very emotional. So I, you know, it's, it's all, it, it's all passed on through generations and how you help humans cope right so and then some of us are different some of us are more warm than others and um with regards to culture right so and the same thing with my with my husband you know he's eastern european and so what did he learn from his ancestors mm. um and what is his mom like his parents his family actually came in through ellis island and they were there for like two or three months and then they came to connecticut so they were polish came to america ended up in connecticut but they were, they had a very strong family hold. And so the women, the Polish women from his story are very united. And so he, my husband really understands motherhood, really understands maternity and really could help me, even though I had like 12 years of education to what were my expectations of being a mom, right? Yeah. Because all of it is like expectations. Does that answer your question? I know it was a lot yeah yes it does and it makes sense because we're from a polish background so i can totally see it where our grandparents and great-grandparents were raised on war and scarcity communism so we always had the mentality of save as much money as you can because we don't know when bad, bad times are going to exist and we unconsciously play that story so often in our childhood yeah especially when it comes yeah especially like in, same with your sense your case is like for example we were raised by our moms, by our grandmas. It's basically the, the same role that, that your husband experienced and same what you experienced. Like the, the, the female of the household of, of like the family takes care of, of, of the kid. And men are very, we, we know this. It's very, it's very ingrained in us that the woman's going to take care of the kid because she does it better. And we're just there more like kind of reinforcement uh, in, in, in a sense. And it's beautiful what you were saying because it's almost like when you mentioned trauma and all that kind of stuff and generational trauma, ancestral trauma, it's almost like you're trying to fix whatever your parents kind of messed up on. And you're trying to to fix that as best as you can so that way your children don't have to deal with those problems. And it's, yeah, it's such a wonderful thing because you and your husband come together to have this kid and you want you have this perfect idea of how you want them to live, how you want them to be raised. And that's basically based off of where your kind of parents made, made those mistakes. So those mistakes don't happen again. And it's cool to see then in the future when your kids grow up, see you kind of where they're lacking. And then it's gonna be, it's gonna be their job to fix whatever kind of you messed up on it because we're not perfect. So how does, how does the, because we're, because we're men here. So how does the men's side, the dad side of the, of the whole growing up, raising a kid, dealing with pregnancy, how does that affect everything? Because a lot of time when we think of pregnancy, people focus on the female, the mom, the woman, and how they should act, what they should do. 
what should the, the, the man do in this relationship to make sure that the kid comes out healthy and doesn't come out with any kind of issues? It's, this is such a, again, such a great question. And we have to raise awareness um, about being a family. And it's not just the mom getting prenatal care. So I know that, and, and I do this in my practice a lot. I encourage the husband, the partner, the FOB to be present. So there's a lot of education. Prenatal care is also for the men. It's, it's so important for the men, for the man. You know, it, prenatal care is for you guys. And so I think that that's a, that's a space that you as men have to step into and say, hey, this is my space too. Like I belong here. And your partner or women should say that to say my partner needs to come in and be part of this. And I know that usually 100% or not 100%, but I would say 80% of the time, men are at work and it would be good to even offer a zoom session where men can participate and ask questions because prenatal care should also be done together and to have a healthy child it takes that kind of knowledge and so there's there's a lot more that we as nurses healthcare providers are able to come up with modern modern healthcare um, to to create a twist into this family-centered wellness because it takes a village and it starts with you guys. It starts with inviting that father back into this picture because I think that for a lot of, a lot of the amount of time, I would say, you know, since I've been practicing nursing, men have been kind of like take push to the side and it shouldn't be that way at all, at all. And you also mentioned the two to eight weeks after, after delivery being the most crucial. What's going on with that child that, that makes that time period so important? Bonding. Mm. So we have to encourage bonding. So if we could sign those forms for family medical leave, encourage dads to take family medical leave with mom so that you guys can be at home bonding, you know, helping support mom, breastfeeding, because that's your baby too. And so if mom is supported and happy and feels comforted through the, you know, first source, which is the father of the baby, you know, husband, partner, then it's a, it's a, it's a cup right? Cup, cup of nurses. I love the, the cup of nurses thing because the cup continues to be filled and then mom can give to the baby. It's really hard to fill your cup when you're on your own on this journey. So always asking, you know, how can I help support you? And then where does the man obtain that source of, of a cup? Like where do they fill their cup? Um, is it through exercise? Is it through eating healthy? Is it through cooking? Is it through meditation? Is it through mindfulness? Is it through going to church and reconnecting with, you know, what was your spiritual past or beliefs, family belief systems, your mom, your dad. So it's always like where where, we, where do we go back to our source? And it's always looking like outside of us for that extra support because we can't do it alone. And what about like the subconscious mind and epigenetics? I know you mentioned with emotional trauma, I think in the fetus, but also in that two to six week period, how do epigenetics play a role? And then once if the baby, let's just say, learns attachment a specific way or wasn't or that maybe the mother wasn't as present. So then the baby learns a avoidant attachment style. How does that all play a role in the development of the child? So really important question. Also, you have a DNA that's set in this baby. It's going to continue. It's a chain. It's the, it's the command of formation, right? And when we have um, altered 
epigenetics. So when we have an environment that is not ideal because of a lack of bonding support, the, those hormones are going to cause weakness or breaks in the links of the DNA, right? So then becomes a higher likelihood of cancer and a higher likelihood of failure to thrive higher likelihood of colic, like I mentioned, those are like basic small things that you have to look for in the newborn. Is my baby gaining weight? Is my baby happy? Is my baby crying too much? Because yeah, you can change the baby. Yes, you can uh, comfort the baby. Yes, you can. But if this baby's constantly crying, it's under some form of stress and it's just not you. It's how are we helping this baby quell? And so looking for a pediatrician that understands this dynamic of how to help soothe babies and learning about soothing and baby massage and speaking to the baby um, in, gen in a gentle voice, helping that baby understand its environment so that he, he or she feels comforted and safe. And it's not like it's, it's immune system and its stress response isn't on all the time. So when that baby feels calm, then you're helping that baby's epigenetics continue to procure the dna so you have a healthier human mm -hmm. and what about the relationship between the mother and fa father because right now what i'm thinking if you're talking to the baby and talking to it emotionally what if you're talking in distress to your partner emotionally is that directly impacting the baby as well definitely impacting the baby babies feel energy babies feel the surround and babies feel um spheres of energy so when you look at um, auras, um, I forgot who was this, this, the scientist who said that, you know, everybody has a certain light that we emanate. It's just be, because we can't, we can't physically see it with our eyes, mm -hmm. but babies still have that ability, ability to feel uh, safety versus not safety. And so tones and voices definitely carry on that like reflex where babies can feel stressed if there's that like you know that kind of friction between the partner mm -hmm. okay yeah I mean, that makes complete sense because I, I read a handful of studies that say when you play music like classic music to a, a baby that's in the womb it, it's, it reacts to it in a certain way so it's able to to pick up on just because you can't you know understand you what it's saying just uh the the tonality of it it picks up on that and it acts differently oh yeah mm -hmm. i mean you have plants you have yeah. plants that you can make that that experiment with right and that i think that experiment has been recited over and over again you have a plant that's exposed to loving gentle words and then you have a, a, a plant that's exposed to violent violent words violent music um and that plant's not going to grow as well as a plant that gets told that you know they love it and it's beautiful and it, you know it's and you even see it in animals too and my, my puppy loves it when i tell him hi you know like hi baby who loves you and he's like he perks up like he gets all happy you know but when i'm mad at him he can also tell because he like his tail will go in there like he had an accident i'm like oh herbie why did you do that you know and he's gone he like hides under the bed so definitely tones and and guess what guys that's energy right so our vocal cords our energy comes in from from inside of us and this is where the chakras come in um oh wow like there so have you if you've Let's ever read Ra ram das mm, ram das yeah ram das so ram das um i don't have the book in front of me but i was just read it last night it says 
What happens when you have a newborn that's crying and it doesn't stop? What happens when you have a newborn that's irritating everybody? What happens? What does everybody do when this newborn is not able to be quelled? What is one to do? And he recommends to hold hands. He recommends holding hands and praying, like bringing in this positive energy for this newborn and visualizing this newborn be at peace with itself and calming down the distractions that's happening energetic, energetic wise. And it's in the Ram Das book, Be Here Now. I love that book. You read it, it's a vertical read, and it's beautiful because it talks about how to quell a newborn baby and you know energy and energetic flows and chakras. It starts from the bottom up. The foundation is down in our pelvis. The solar plexus is in our belly. We have it in our chest. It comes out through our voice. And this is why when we practice a really good yoga session, the teacher, the instructor is going to almost hypnotize you with the voice, the ability to control the voice and the tones, because then it's, it's, it goes into the crown and you conduct the energy, right? Cause we're all conductors. And so when you feel that and you're at peace with that presence and it's a room full of people that are in that same vibe, then it's, then it's very healing mm. and it's, it's very transcendental and it's clear energy versus when it's dark and murky murky and anxious and scary, right? You have somebody whose voice is not as clear, it's not smooth, it quivers when they talk, you feel that anxiety, that person is like throwing off their vibes. Um, so it's really important to, you know, be in that room with that baby in a really good space, clear yourself out. I used to do that all the time. When I walked in with my children, I was like, okay, my kids are like acting up. That's, that's me. <laughs> that's me. That's not them. Is, is there a difference that you noticed in Eastern Western upbringings as far as Western uh, child development, maybe pregnancies versus Eastern medicine, child and development? Because for example, you're talking about chakras and energy and most of the Asian continent is Buddhist and other religions. Does it play a role at all with the child's upbringing? Have you, um, have you looked at it in your research? I haven't looked at the specificity of that in my research, um, but I do know that it makes sense to, to religious leaders, mm. right? When you have Buddha, you have Jesus that says, let the children come to me. Um, so there is this ability to know that, that children are, are graceful in their own way and they understand energy and they understand the clarity of, of the earth and the nature and the existence of that is. So these religious leaders like the Dalai Lama, right? So when you're way up here in enlightenment, your job is to promote kindness. And so that's what we promote with children is kindness, kindness, kindness. Um, but I think that as adults, we have to really make that much more practiced, right? So we have to apply it more. Yes, we talk a lot, be kind, be nice, but we have to teach children how to apply kindness and i think that that's a, just a really good way to to raise kids is to be able to apply kindness because it begins with kindness mm -hmm. kindness to the self kindness to others and then you're able to just cope with your own feelings first wait what's going on i'm feeling anxious i'm feeling worried I'm feel you go back to the breath you connect back with the breath you study the mind you study the breath and then you can care for this newborn 
care for that child. It doesn't stop running around. So when moms are in my office and their kids are acting up, they start yelling, stop running around, stop moving. I'm like, whoa, 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 wait. I'm like, let's, let's talk about this. I said, he's okay. I know he's a little bit more active. Let's talk about you. Let's talk. Let's figure out how to gather the breath. And when you can do that, I think it's much easier to handle with a colicky baby, handle, um, you know, those sleepless nights. So we go back to mindfulness. We go back to yoga. We go back to the mind. And that's going to be the cure for a lot of people when it comes to this, you know, tumultuous time of childbearing. What are some of the things that moms really struggle with during pregnancy and also after? What are their biggest struggles? What are some constant problems you always hear people encountering? Bonding. They get frustrated quickly. So moms don't realize how much work it's going to be. They don't realize they don't know themselves. And so when you're triggered, you don't know your triggers. It's, and then you now you're being triggered because you didn't take care of a newborn. So it's really good for moms to have, you know, YouTubes, um, to expose themselves to YouTube, to raise a puppy, to expose themselves to children because they can understand the triggers of like, oh gosh, I, I, don't, I can't stand babies crying. That like drives me crazy. And then guess what? <laughs> you talk to your partner. I don't know. Children are not for me. That's such an honest conversation. Right? Like it, we don't all have to be moms. So... Uh -huh. I know, but there's this like, there's this cookie cutter that we all want to fit into. And it's really good to, again, expose ourselves. Is that for me? And so some of us would have made different choices. Mm -hmm. Do you know anything about the link between ADHD and emotional trauma? So I was reading a book called The Body Keeps a Score. And he was mentioning something how we have a huge pandemic technically of prescribing kids Ritalin what's the other one Ritalin, Adderall. Adderall and ADHD masks the same symptoms as trauma but we're just calling it you know the DSM-5 puts labels and diagnosis on people makes them take pills in a sense but we don't really solve the core root of the issue that's happening have you looked at any research along those lines with I don't have anything that's evidence-based, but I do remember that I had a, a teacher who lived next door to me in New York City, and she was a yoga instructor, and she constantly came in when my daughter was very colicky and used to rub her down and, you know, just help her quell from crying and just explain to me that this is really important. So, you know, she was a big teacher of mine, and she's passed away, but it's really important to just to, to get some of that energy that's like going everywhere back into centering. And so a lot of yoga, there's a lot of yoga now for kids that's happening to help with ADHD. So I don't know what the prospective studies are on that, but I do know that we are aware of it and we are looking at meditation, mindfulness, and yoga for kids in, in the schools. Mm -hmm. Yeah, even like um, this is going into like the adulthood, you know, even with trauma or depression and things like that, whatever is causing this, these issues and imbalances, when we're taking prescription medicine, it's just technically decreasing the sensory output that we're getting into our neurons. So your limbic system, if it is a limbic system, is getting fried a little bit, decreases, so you're able to process emotions properly, but you're not solving the real issue of why are my sensations getting overstimulated? And we just carry on doing the same thing uh, yeah, over I mean, and over again. But yeah, yeah, that's why a lot of stu these studies show that just pharmaceutical solutions to any kind of mental issues or disorders 
success rates like 30% if that but when you bring into a therapist into into this and therapy and actually have this person talk about how they're feeling why they're feeling this way that's actually when it jumps up to about like 70-80% and it, it's it's crazy that you also mentioned the, the bonding because the bonding is very important you're you have this newborn that cannot fend for himself it's complete they're completely reliant on, on the mom and the dad for support and if they're not able to provide that support in those early weeks those early months then it's almost like a baby's not gonna know what to do. It's gonna yeah. be an overdrive all the time. You mentioned it's gonna be always in f- in fight and flight response. Very nervous. Yeah, but then I also hear people saying that hey, if your baby's crying, you should leave it alone so it learns how to, to become independent. Is there any kind of facts behind behind that? You know, because in my sense, it doesn't seem logical. Like you have a crying baby, it obviously needs something. It can't tell you what it, what it needs because all only thing that it could do is is cry, eat, and poop. Right, that's the only thing that it could do. You can't form words, you can't form sentences. So it's like your job to figure out what's going on and just leaving it there just to figure it out by itself. That's almost like going to give it a, a bad attachment style. Like you mentioned, it's going to feel like it's abandoned and it's got a, it's going to be in a fight fight and flare response, right? Because I mean, that never made sense. Yeah, and you have more uh, autoimmune disease, more inflammation. Um, just think about that baby crying itself to sleep. Hey, guess what? I did it. I verbalized my kids and I feel miserable because I did it to my daughter. Um, she's type A. I don't know if that's a direct cause or a correlation, but um, I'm hoping that it's not. I'm hoping. Um, but I do tell her, you know, mom was not like as smart as she should have been because I fell for the stupid research back then saying, oh, you should do this. Mm-hmm. You need to seek um you know, you need to sleep during the night. So you need to verbalize your kid and let him cry out, cry it out so that he gets used to it. Well, guess what? Sarah never got used to it. And even to this day, she's 14 years old. She still like wants me to like tuck her into sleep. Like she still wants me to like bond with her. And this part of being a mom, like it never ends. It's not just that six week period. So I think that you have to be intuitive and there's a lot to intuitive parenting, following that gut response. Why is a baby crying? Why is this human not okay? And be able to, comfort and, and why is that so hard i don't know why it's so hard and we try to avoid it i know that i did it's 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 something that was in the research at that point in time i was stressed out because i had to go to school i was getting my doctor degree i had to go to work full time and so that 3d dimensionality of my career or my success and my daughter having to sleep during the night impacted her and so I feel guilty about it now. And do I, do I preach that? No, like I don't preach that. And, I, and I'm glad that I learned from it because I think that the long-term effects are not worth it. And I think that I would be resting so much better knowing that my daughter was comforted and was not allowed or shouldn't have been allowed to cry for as long and you know comfort herself to sleep. Like that's just my own take. Yeah, But, but we I'm learn, gonna... but we learn. Yeah, but on a flip side, you never know what could happen in the future because what if you doing that, you might feel guilty for it now, which I don't think think you should because I feel like sometimes there is like a right or wrong way to do things. Because for example, what if your daughter daughter gets older and now she becomes a more resilient person because you kind of left her alone to kind of cry for those those certain nights. What if she becomes more independent as a, as a woman because of, of going because of going through that? Because there's there's no right or wrong. I see a lot of people. A lot of parents blame themselves for, for like the genetic mishaps that their parents get, like or not their parents, but that their children get. Let's just say a child is born with autism. A lot of parents feel like it's their fault. It's their fault for this happening, but it's not necessarily true. It's just it just happened. It's just a deck that you were dealt. So I feel a lot of these parenting things. It's not 
There's no definitive stuff. It just, you gotta figure out what you think you think is best. And usually what you think is best is the right answer. Just because you made one daughter cry more than the other doesn't necessarily make it, make it, make it bad because now one, one of your kids might struggle with being independent because you always cons consoled her when she was crying versus the other kid where you didn't. Now they're super independent, off to college, re ready to go. You know, all they do is call you once a week and they feel very confident because, because for some reason, when you left them alone at that night, they learned that, hey, it's going to be okay. I'm alone right now as, as a baby, but guess what? Mom's gonna come when I really need her. And you did come when, when she really needed you, but you weren't there all the time. And now that's going to make her this amazing human being where it's like, she knows when she needs you and she knows when she can figure it out herself. So there's really no, I like, no I like black this. and white. Yeah. I yeah. like this. You just provided me with healing. Yeah, because, it, because that's how things is. There's not, there's not, nothing's black and white. And you have to understand that that's just how the world works. We're just figuring things out as, as we go and nothing's really right. Nothing's really wrong. Yeah. And kind of to bounce off. I yeah. I see a common theme here, whether it's the mother and father relationship, the child growing up, everything. There's a theme here that we have to make our emotional needs met. So whether whether it's your you know your daughter yourself there's emotional needs that we have that maybe we were dealt that wrong deck of mm -hmm. cards from ancestral trauma generational trauma but we just need to learn how to label feelings put labels on them like this is anger this is angry man this is happy man just so we need to we um in a given time we're not using external resources to validate our emotions or to make our emotion emotional needs met where we could somehow give that to ourselves right let's just say you weren't comforted comforted as a baby and you need that comfort from somebody that could be comfort from food comfort from drugs mm -hmm. whatever it is what if you could just give that to yourself so i think that's a common theme here that we need to learn how to process emotions whether it's in the relationship to make mm -hmm. the baby better whatever it is and give that to uh, to ourselves that we are lacking yeah I feel like if people give a lot of love in their life, because love can be given in different ways. For example, when your parents grounded you and they punished you, yeah, they loved you no matter what, and they, but they had to do that. They did it out of love because they know if they don't punish you for you making these stupid choices, is you're going to keep making those stupid choices. So yeah, they felt sad, but that's kind of that painful love that you've gotten. So going back to like your point where you left your daughter to cry for a little bit longer, you're still loving her. You're, you're just giving her love in a different way. And then, when she needed love in a different way, you came, you, you came back. So there's different ways you can give love. And there's no good or bad way to give love. You're just, you're just given that. Like you keep mentioning energy. And it comes down to energy in a sense too because positive energy could be felt like negative energy for a time being. But then when you think about it, you're like, damn, I really needed that. Like arguments. You know, people yeah. argue. But sometimes you just need to argue. Sometimes, like a little smack on the butt, right? Yeah, sometimes <laughs> if, if you're not arguing with me, do you really love me? If you're, if you're not trying to show me the, the, the truth kind of thing, it's like you're arguing with me for a reason, right? Because you want us to be both agreeable in a civil manner. If, if I didn't care about you, I would argue with you because I would be like, whatever, it's not a big deal. Yeah. So that's a kind of interesting concept to the concept of love. I love that. Absolutely. You can't be totally indifferent because that's not showing love. So Isabella, if you had like one more advice to share with anybody let's just say you're leaving this earth and you had one piece of advice, what kind of advice would you give to somebody? Um, I think that we talked about how things happen two times, right? They happen in mind, they happen in the thoughts, and then they happen in actuality. Um, everything was created twice, first in the thought and then in actual 3D. So the best advice today is going to be to think things through, right? So being very mindful of our decisions because our life right now is being presented to us 
based on what decisions we have made. And so that's going to lay out the picture for the future. So, you know, practice really good decision-making. Yeah, I love that. It's, it's really good because I feel me personally, a lot of my first ideas or first edition, first, like one of the, sometimes the first thing that I do is based off emotion. And sometimes I realize, I realize that's not the best approach to things because someone might tell you something and you're like, oh, that, that sounds good because it feels good or that, that can't be right because it doesn't feel right. And a lot of times we do things off emotion and it's not always always done with the with, uh, best result in mind. So yeah, it's really good advice to think things through because we really need to. We really need to think things through. We have to reflect on things. We can't just make split decisions because that's not how, how we work as humans. We're sometimes, sometimes we make decisions really quickly. Yeah. And so we have to kind of stand back a little bit. And I know that's uncomfortable, but we have to think twice. Like, do I want to work out right now? Nah, I can do it tomorrow. Mm. Like, maybe you should do it now. You know, like, so like always think about what is going to be the action or the reaction to whatever decision making you're making. Try to get really good at that. And so that way you can make decisions faster that are just more positive and have better outcomes. Mm. Yeah, that makes Thank sense. You. We just want to acknowledge you for your knowledge that you brought today to the podcast, the approach that you have with the mind, body, and soul approach to a healthy pregnancy. I think it's a lot of value for everybody that's listening, including us when we have little Peters and Matts running around in the future to know what exactly to do and for the father to be included in the pregnancy because you're just as important as Isabella mentioned. So thank you. So Thank you. And, and just really quick, just to tie it all in, it's uh, global warming, right? So global warming right now, the earth is on fire where there's a lot of inflammation globally. Mm. And when we start to deduct it and bring it to like the micro, the micro level, the microcosm, um, we don't want to be those inflammatory creatures. Mm. So that's what I like to practice and preach. And so I don't want global warming within me. I don't want inflammation in my body in my heart and my mind and my soul. So I practice a lot of that, you know, green light, loving light with all that I do, my voice, the tones of my voice, my thoughts, my actions, how I approach people, my presence. And I don't, I know I just, I just don't want to have that kind of carbon footprint of toxicity. So that's how I live my life. Sorry. I was going to say, it's like the carbon footprint you, you leave on your future generation in a sense. Yeah. yeah. It's all tied back in. Yeah. And Isabel, where can people find you? You're going to find me at Dr. Isabel Bogdan, no dot. And you can find me on, um, I was going to say YouTube. YouTube is coming. And I have Believe, Believe TV. I have my brand, Believe.co. That's also my email address. And Believe.co is a platform for all women of all backgrounds to come together and lift and support one another with regards to healthy, healthy lifestyle, healthy choices. So that's how you can find me. Thank you so much, Isabel. We always love having Thanks, you on. Guys. We love having you on. You're just a wealth of knowledge. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh, I love you so much. Bring me on anytime. Sure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.